It's like being on X Factor here. It's extraordinary. So my name is um, Alan Kelleher, and I'm a social scientist, a sociologist, actually. Um, but I'm an unusual social scientist in the sense that I've spent the last 30 years of my life um, talking to dying people. And um, I speak to people uh, with six months left to live, or six days left to live, or a few hours. And um, Sam has asked me to come here today to talk about the end. And although I study a variety of dimensions of dying, it's the mystical experiences that Sam particularly wanted me to talk about today. So before I do that, I'd like to start with a personal story just to set the scene. When I was six years old, my father asked me to run an errand for him. And I was very pleased to be chosen for this because I was generally not very good at running errands. Usually I would come back with the wrong thing or without the change or not come back at all. So this was the latest opportunity to prove my mettle, that I could eventually get this right. My father was a smoker in those days, and he pushed some money into my hand, and he said, Son, I want you to go down to the local shop and get me a pack of camels. So I thought, that's terrific, that's a simple thing. I went down the street, kept saying to myself, I have to remember this, camels, 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 camel, 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 camels, camels, I have to remember, camels, camel, 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 camels. And I got to the shop. And as I rounded into the shop and walked up to the counter, there was this very large man behind the counter who leaned towards me and said, Yes. And I felt a moment of nausea and exhilaration, and I said to him, I'd like a pack of donkeys, please. <laughs> Now, he obviously hadn't had much experience arguing with children. And I had <clears throat> very little experience arguing with adults. But he said he had no donkeys, and I insisted that he did have them, or I wouldn't have been sent there to collect them. <laughs> he was... He was... Uh, how do you describe me? He was... He was dismayed, and um, I was indignant. He accused me of being mistaken, and I accused him of hiding the donkeys. 
and communication broke down roughly around that point. And I went home empty-handed. And my father, who was always a bit of a philosopher, he liked to ask questions first before he hit me. And he said, why? Why on earth did you ask for donkeys? And I thought about this deeply. And even afterwards, I thought about it. And the answer's the same. And I really like donkeys. And I realised then, around that time, that inside me, deep inside me, but driving me, was bias. And as I got older, I realised that everybody has bias. And when I became an adult and an academic, I realised that academics were big with this. Extraordinarily biased people. And for the academics out there among you, we call that epistemology. <laughs> that's, the, that's the value and preference system where we decide what counts as real knowledge and everything else is rubbish, including the department next door. For those of you who are not academics, we call that the politics of knowledge. What's really important about research and about knowing what's real and what isn't real. I want you to hang on to this idea in the next 30 minutes. I want you to get a good grip on the donkey in you, or this is going to be a very dull 30 minutes <laughs> if you don't restrain that donkey. So, what I've been asked to speak about is this thing called the near-death experience. Now, there are a number of interesting things that happen near death. Uh, deathbed visions, of course, is one of them, and the prevalence for deathbed visions is about 30%. Um, about a median time of two days before someone dies, they will claim to see they're dead. Usually it'll be a parent, commonly a mother, sometimes friends. There is a British study that says that incidence is about 10%. Unfortunately, that's a hospice study, and um, the interviews were done 10 days before death, and we know that the median time for these appearances is two days, so that may have been done a little bit early. We know about visions of the bereaved, people who lose somebody important in their lives. We'll often report sensing a presence or sometimes a full-blown apparition of their dead. They'll be able to have conversations with them. The prevalence of that is 30 to 50%, depending on the survey you read. Except in Japan. In Japan, um, it can be up to 80%. I hope I don't get any older. These things get tougher to open all the time. So... I won't be talking about those things, I'll be talking about the near-death experience. And I'm sure most of you have heard 
of some of these experiences, and these are some of the features, but I'm going to walk you through some of them, because there's one or two very interesting things about them. So in medical circles, the near-death experience, and it's called the near-death experience primarily by clinicians. There's a huge literature in this area now, and we have now several thousand cases of this. So these features are distilled from these several thousand cases. So normally a, a person will become unconscious, cardiac arrest or something like this, sometimes in surgery, sometimes outside, and when they're resuscitated, they will tell a story like this. About 10 to 20% is the worldwide prevalence of this thing. And once they're unconscious, they will experience an out-of-body experience. That's the locus of perception will leave the body. Your sense of self will leave the body and you can look down and see the resuscitation efforts from a place away from your own body. Very unusual kind of experience. After that point, some people experience a movement through darkness. They'll rush through what they will often describe as a tunnel, a tunnel sensation. At the end of which, they will meet a being of light. Now, it's interesting that both neuroscience people and members of the general public think of, oh, I rushed down the tunnel and there was a light at the end of the tunnel. But actually, it isn't just a light at the end of the tunnel. And it, Extensive analysis of the themes in this area and the interview data suggests that actually when you appear into the light, it's actually a being. And I like this bit the best. I'm, of all the features, I particularly like the being. It appeals to my social science background. The physical anthropologists and the archaeologists who often talk about transitional hominids. And these are um, the Australopithecines and people like that. These are have features of the great apes, but also have some human features, and they are the transitional um, species before we become fully human. So they have characteristics of, of the earlier mammals and, and being modern human beings. This being of light character is clearly some kind of transitional hominid. So in the sense that it has some human features, so it has a human shape often, it has a sense of humour, it, um, it um, is friendly, it has social skills, it's very supportive, and that's important for the latter bit that I'll talk about in a minute, life review. But it also has some non-human characteristics. For example, it can read your mind effortlessly. And um, it flies. And if you hold its hand, you can fly too, apparently. And the other non-human characteristic is that it's as bright as the sun. But since you don't have any eyes, it doesn't hurt to look at it. Now, at this point, I would like to say to you that, just to reinforce the idea that I'm not making this up, this is... Um, stuff that comes straight out of the interview data uh, from patients who have had these experiences. But I think it's a very interesting uh, character, this being of light. The other thing is that it's slightly it's, uh, it appears to be androgynous. 
We do have lots of interviews where they say it's a man, but the majority of the interview data suggests that it's an androgynous being of some sort. Um, when you ask people who've met this thing, what is it? Um, you'll get a variety of answers. Most people don't know what it is. To be fair, that's what the interview data suggests. There's a small group of people who think it's a religious figure. So they'll say it's an angel, for example. Some people will say it's an angel. Um, some people will say it's God. We don't, I don't think it's God. Uh, and you do get the odd person who will say it's, it's Jesus. No, but it's, the, the most important thing about this being of light is that it never identifies itself. So it doesn't say, hello, I'm Jesus, I'm, I'm really glad you could make it. <laughs> never says that. So when someone says it's Jesus, that's their view of what, who they think it is. Or when they think it's an angel or a high, higher being, a messenger of some sort, that's just a more often culture-specific understanding of what it is they're encountering. After which, there will be a life review, and often the being will be there with you to have this life review. It will ask a question of some sort, uh, some very general thing like, what have you got to show me, or, 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 or even what have you done with your life? Wordlessly, wordlessly. And at that point, you will experience a review of your life. But it's not all the things you would hope to see. It's not your graduation ceremony. It's not your, the prize you won for chemistry in school or indeed the Nobel Prize or any of those kinds of things. It isn't your wedding day, if that was a good day for you, or your, the day the divorce papers came through, if that's a better day for you. <laughs> in fact, it's small moral moments in your life, apparently. So, for example, when you were... Um, seven years old, and somebody asked you for an eraser. The little girl in front of you asked, turns around from her desk and says, can I borrow your eraser? And if I was in Australia, I'd say, you're a rubber, but I know it means something different here. And you say no. That's what you'll see. Those are little moments that you'll see. But the interesting thing is the replay is not everything in your memory. What's different is that instead of experiencing what you feel, you'll experience what she feels. So you can imagine how harrowing that must be. Of course, there are lots of good incidents and a lot of bad ones. It's quite a roller coaster ride, and this being of light plays only a very important role in supporting you in a non-judgmental way, apparently. After this, you might meet deceased relatives and friends, dead Uncle Bob, your mum. You might see your dogs and cats. Children see a lot of dogs and cats, children who've been revived, but not only children, adults also see dogs and cats. And supernatural vistas are quite common and cross-cultural, it should be said. So, woods and um, lakes and... Um, people entertaining themselves, playing, and uh, even cities. There have been some extensive reports of cities. Cities are also unusual, as you'd expect from this kind of thing. So they're built of a luminous material, like marble. The material radiates the light. The New Age people love this. They really get into this. I think this is, this is exactly what we've been saying for years. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. And at some point, um, you return, 
There's, I will talk about post-near-death experience values in a sec, but what I'll say is there's two things that are not there which are worth mentioning. One is that the, this entire experience is felt as a loving experience, apparently. People feel they've come home, literally come home. I mean, it's difficult to understand what that means and what that could possibly mean, but it's a reoccurring phrase that's used in the interview data. People say, I felt like that I'd been away and I had come back. And the second thing that's interesting is that often these people are away for half a day, sometimes longer. But in terms of the people who did the resuscitation, they're only away for five, 10, 15 minutes at most. So from the point of view of the people who are working on you, you've been away 10 or 15 minutes, but from your point of view, you've been away half a day, sometimes longer. So time distortion is a key characteristic in these experiences. And finally, nearly all the people who come back find that they change in three major ways. They're more interested in service, more interested in learning and education, and they become more interested in spiritual matters. Not necessarily religious matters, they don't necessarily go back to church, but they take an interest in... in um, matters like God and spiritual meaning, purpose. They take a great interest in reading. Some of them go back to university. Many quit their jobs, do something else. A lot of marriages break up in this population. Unsatisfying relationships are no longer tolerated by a lot of these people. Fear of death seems to um, be less or evaporate in this population. So that's... The near-death experience, what did I do with that thing? Here it is. Okay. So the most common response to hearing this story among academics, not just doctors, but all academics, is this has to be a hallucination. Oh, I love this bit. This is probably drugs. So it's the side effects of anesthesia, ketamine injection. Endorphins, got to be endorphins. Endorphins is my favourite. Endorphins also released in extreme sports, especially long-distance running. I've yet to hear a long-distance runner say, I was running and after I hit the 15-kilometre mark, I saw my dead father. <laughs> if that happened regularly, I think I'd tune into sports more. Anyway... The bottom line here is that we have plenty of people who report these experiences who have not had any drugs at all. So we can get rid of that. This leaves us with cerebral anoxia. And for the non-medical people here, this is oxygen starvation to the brain. We live in an era, and we've heard a bit of it here today, where everything can be explained by the neuron. Oh, I love that. It's great stuff. You own a smartphone and all of a sudden you know whether or not there's God. So here we go. Let's have a look at this. There are a couple of problems with the idea that this is oxygen starvation to the brain. If it's oxygen starvation to the brain, then all of these characteristics should actually be there, whether you're a New Guinean tribesman or a New York businessman. The brain, after all, is the brain. Physiology is physiology. But in fact... We have about 250, more or less, 250, 300 cases of hunter-gatherers who've reported near-death experiences. 
These are old records we get from explorers and from missionaries and from the early anthropologists. And one of the interesting things about that is that hunter-gatherers don't report tunnel sensation. And they don't report life review. Now, either the brain's wired differently, which we doubt, and that includes contemporary hunter-gatherers, or they're culturally different. And the answer, obviously, is they're culturally different. Most of us, in fact, all of us in this room, have been shaped by historical religions. It doesn't matter whether that's Hinduism or Buddhism or Christianity or Judaism, it, it makes no difference. Basically, religions since the last Ice Age, three, four thousand years old. In the thing about religion is that it's not just going to church, it shapes your psychology, whether you're religious or not, because it's the underpinnings of society, the underpinnings of the way in which you see yourselves as people. So religion, historical religions give you this sense. It gives you linearity. So you see your life here. So this is where you're born, right here. You go to school along here. Here's where you have a gap year. <laughs> then you go to university. Then you marry for the first time. <laughs> then you have children here. And the divorce. And the second marriage. A career change somewhere in there. Third marriage. Divorce. Here, come back here. You come out, come out gay. <laughs> and here, you go to Cornwall and open a pottery. <laughs> Bit over here is fuzzy for everybody, but then you're dead here. <laughs> this is a linearity thinking. We all do this. It doesn't matter whether you're born in New Delhi or whether you're born in New York or Cheltenham. This is this is the way this is the way we think. But hunter-gatherers don't think like this. This, if we turn it, for those of you who are science-oriented, is called a Mobius strip. Things are not just invisible and visible and black and white and men and women and heaven and hell and earth and the sacred and the profane. It's your perspective. The Aboriginals in Australia... I'm Australian, in case you haven't picked that up. The Aboriginals in Australia call this um, the dreaming. And it, each of us is born in an aspect of this. So we are animal one moment, and we are human in another moment, and we are animal again, and we are the stars, and we are the plants and the rocks. And the North American Indians feel the same way, well, originally anyway, and Inuit and Kalahari Bushmen. That's why they have totems. So if you ask, manage to grab hold of a 200-year-old Australian Aboriginal. You ask them, how's your career going? They have no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you would ask an Eskimo whether you'd like to write a biography. We don't know what, you, we don't know what you're talking about. Because we're, they're more we than me. That's very important. So you wouldn't expect people like that to have a life with you, and indeed they don't. That's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
So that's the first problem. So all the neuroscience stuff, trying to work out exactly the neuro, neurological pathways that would create a tunnel or a life review, a bit of a waste of time here. But it gets worse. What we find is, if you look at the castaway literature and the trapped coal miner literature, it's probably not a big core for that among you here, but in Australia, we live on an island. So lots of people you know, get a lot of money and they buy a boat and sail away and a whale surfaces from under it and they're in the water. And then they come back traumatised because they're middle class, they write a book about it. So we've got lots of books to read. And what we find is that tunnel sensation and a life review, meeting a being of light, supernatural being, having a life review, meeting dead Uncle Tom, have been reported by all of these people. They're common, common characteristics of people who are fully conscious, fully conscious, whose brains are not anox anoxic. And they will tell you these things. We've seen people, we've got cases where people have lost their job, who've reported some of these characteristics. People in deep depression, We've had people who've sat beside the beds of dying people who've had some of these experiences, who themselves are not unconscious. And we've had, of course, visions of the bereaved who have some of these characteristics. So the whole idea of searching for oxygen deprivation in fully conscious populations seems a little bit of a red herring. Then there's the debate about who's got the evidence. Somebody must have the evidence for what's going on here. So if you go into a new age store, you'll know them because they're selling dream catchers and crystals, and you can get your palm read or you can get a medium thing. Every little major town that's got a sizable middle class has these. And if you look through the books, you'll find the shoe on the ledge story. A man goes into surgery, has a cardiac arrest, is resuscitated, is put in the recovery room. As he recovers, he speaks to uh, a ward nurse, who's a male, and he tells the nurse that whilst he was in surgery, he came out of his body and he floated down through the wards and out of the building on the third floor. And as he was floating on the third floor, he saw a shoe on the ledge, a runner. A most unusual observation. So um, dismayed and incredulous, the male um, nurse attendant actually opens the window and crawls out onto the ledge and finds the shoe thereby evidencing the fact that this man's had a genuine out-of-body experience. That's a myth. It was created by a Midwestern University lecturer trying to illustrate a set of points, and it made its way into the literature as a fact. <laughs> then there's um, another one of my favourite stories about a hapless cardiologist. It shows you the power of American medicine. There's a cardiologist who happened to be taking a blood gas measure from the femoral artery, and the patient arrested, and he kept going. Besotted with the idea that this is really about oxygen uh, deprivation, he read the result and found that the oxygen levels were not only normal, they were slightly elevated, thereby challenging the view that this is about oxygen deprivation. So here we are. I know there's lots of medical students in the audience here. Physiology 101. We know that any peripheral measure of blood gas is no measure of the central nervous system, don't we? And that's because the brain is oxygen thirsty. It takes some 30 to 50 percent more oxygen, 30 to 50 times more oxygen, sorry, than the rest of the periphery. So this is an error. 
this is a mistake. It does not prove that oxygen deprivation is not operative here, even if you wanted to go along that particular line. Then there's the EEG, electroencephalograph. Lots of people have had electroencephalographs attached to their heads. It's like ECG, except for the brain. Instead of having little white patches and round things on your chest, you have them on your head. It's supposed to measure conductivity and uh, electrical pulses, particularly in the higher brain. And there have been plenty of people who have arrested under those situations where the resuscitation efforts have gone on for a long time and they found that, indeed, they were flatlining on the EEG, which suggests that high brain's not working and yet they're still having experiences. That's a very, very interesting one. I quite like that one, too. Um, but I guess the thing you've got to take into account here is that there are other studies to show that you can get electrical impulses regular ones, from rocks, eggs, and my favourite, bedroom slippers. <laughs> so if you want to take the evidence from EEGs, here's your challenge. Are your bedroom slippers actually sentient beings? <laughs> now, I know some of the new age elements in this crowd will say, yes, they are, and, and will hassle me over coffee later. But I'm thinking that if you're taking the goose, that you take the gander. That you like the EEG evidence, flatlining, but still have experience, then the onus is also on you to explain why bedroom slippers do not have a soul. <laughs> then there's neuroscience. Neuroscience, my friend, the neuroscience. First of all, as we know, neuroscience people are ignorant of cultural data. They just don't think that counts as knowledge, so they don't even bother reading the literature. They think it's all about the brain, so we'll just stick to the topic, shall we? Uh, and we've really upped the donkey's ass there. So then there's the, they're absorbed by the medical examples, and what makes matters worse is that there's widespread false citation practices and misrepresentation. These are serious charges, and I could actually be here literally all afternoon with examples, but I'll just take a couple of my, my home favourites. Here's Persinger. Persinger says the type of personality change in near-death experiences should be specific to the temporal lobe pattern that is seen clinically. Symptoms include increased circumstantiality, religiosity, philosophical pursuits, widening affect, and a sense of the personal. Well, look at you, churchgoers, you might be epileptic. But he's only quoting um, Berenfidio, after all. Um, that's, uh, so if we look at that, first notice that he's talking about these things are symptoms, right? Religiosity is a symptom. Philosophical pursuit. I know there's a philosopher in the room. You're a symptom. Um, Bear and Fidio stress the importance of all these traits in concert to be identified with unusual temporal love activity, and that includes anger, sadness, obsessionalism, humorlessness, and dependency. Um, Near-death experience, people don't have any of those. You'll notice how he conveniently just leaves that out. Top man. Another example, recent neurological analysis. Now, here we're getting into some very heavy material. He's quoting other neurologists here. So, recent neurological analysis of some religious events, such as visionary experiences from medieval sources, Crowell and Backrack, St. Paul's ecstatic visions, Lansborough, and sacred painting, Jans, which seem to correlate well with epileptiform phenomenology, suggest that we are on the right path in separating physical elements from metaphysical ones. We don't need to look at religious studies. Neurology has the answer. 
And we've got three studies citing that. Now let's have a look at those three studies, shall we? Kroll and Backrack are psychiatrists. I know many psychiatrists really want to be neurologists. I think Freud was a neurologist and he escaped. Lansborough is actually a theologian. And Jantz is an art historian and critic. Kroll and Backrack conclude that over half of the medieval visions that they analysed could be attributed to abnormal states. The very opposite claim Gomez Juria is actually making. Some of you here will still insist with your donkeys that this has still got to be some kind of hallucination. Well, let's have a look at that, shall we? The international lifetime prevalence of idiosyncratic perceptions, that's people who claim to see things that are not there, is 5 to 25%, depending on the study you read. About 7% of those could be first episode psychotic experiences. So 7% of that 5 to 25% prevalence. About 20% of those, of that 7% figure, about 1.4%, go on to experience further psychosis, with more than 80% of those remitting over time. So that means that over 90% and 98% of hallucinations people who claim to see and hear things which are not there are normal. What predicts people going to a psychiatrist is distress. You can look this literature up yourself, or publicly available. It isn't hearing voices. People hear voices all the time. If you weren't so embarrassed, I could ask for people to raise their hands now. All right. So here we have the invisible friends of children, religious believers, artists and musicians, the inner voice of conscience and inspiration, and the bereaved, of course. Huge figures of 30 to 50%, 80% in Japanese, who claim to hear their dead, or see their dead. These are not psychiatric conditions, they're not even considered psychiatric conditions, they're considered idiopathic or idiosyncratic perceptions. We have no explanation for this. There are some psychoanalytic, psychodynamic people who've got thoughts about this, but certainly not the psychiatry community. Hearing and seeing things that are not there is, in fact, the social norm. We do have hallucinations from organic um, disease and trauma, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Charles Bonnet, epilepsy, drug takers. Those things are fairly common. Um, but near-death experiences have none of these comorbidities. So we've got a very good view of the people who have these near-death experiences, and the majority of them don't come with this kind of um, history, this type of medical history. Also, age and gender and religious denomination, or being religious or not religious, does not predict people who have these things. When I was at one Australian university, uh, a member of the Australian skeptics group, who are people who are debunkers of superstitions and the new age idea, came to see me in a slight panic because he'd had a near-death experience. <laughs> and whilst he'd had a near-death experience, he was given some very important formula. He was a biochemist. I don't know where that biochemist man is. He was a biochemist and he was given some very interesting formula, which he published. He did very well by it, but it unsettled him. <laughs> rather disturbed him. So most of the people, um, there are no social demographic predictors for who has them. People will have them with a, no matter what their backgrounds are. And they don't conform to any idea that we currently understand about hallucinations. 
And although it's true, there must be some neurological correlates, because we are, we have a brain. When I smile, there's neurology happening. Now don't try to explain happiness to me that way. You can explain an erection, but you can't explain love. We need to be very clear about this. Otherwise, you go down the track of reductionism. We're talking about a theory of human beings very similar to robotics. If you're happy with that, that's good. Keep away from me after coffee. <laughs> Some of the skeptics say, you know, if there is an afterlife, you spend half a day in the other world, running around these cities with luminous brickwork, talking to the dead who've been over there for decades, and they come back, or you come back, and all you've got to say is, things are okay. You brought no wisdom back. You brought no major knowledge. This is all you've got to say. And when the dead visit the bereaved, that's all they mainly say. Everything's okay. Don't worry. And the skeptic thinks that's got to be the first proof it's nonsense. I think that's the first proof that there's something there, frankly. My mother's 89. If she dies soon, and she will, if I don't die before and she comes back to me with the wisdom of the ages, I know it's not her. <laughs> if she's solving ontological problems, I'm getting an exorcist. <laughs> so I think also that's a red herring. We can forget that one. I'm going to tell you this, end with a couple of stories very quickly. I come from the working class, and I come from an Asian uh, background, and uh, my biography is quite different as an Australian to many others. I became an academic the hard way, and by the time I was in my 30s, I still had not travelled um, to Europe or anywhere interesting, really. Um, but I uh, had a colleague who came from a completely opposite background, European, uh, indeed, uh, Anglo-European background, uh, wealthy. Uh, her husband was a cardiologist. Still a nice person, despite all that. And every, uh, every year she would go to the south of France from Australia. And I thought this was wonderful. And I said, Jeanne, I've never been to the south of France. I've since fixed that, by the way. But I, at that time, I've never been to the south of France. Please send me a postcard. And she said, yeah, sure. So she sent me a postcard. And on that postcard, when it finally came, was, it's very hot here. The dogs wear diamante collars. And that tube station is Earl's Court. That's what I got. She was in what I considered to be heaven. There must be many wonderful things to see and say. But she said it's hot. Now, what does that mean? I don't like heat. That's why I've come to Britain, not the other way around. And she knew that, so she said, it's hot. The dogs wear diamante collars. we both dog lovers. Um, she's got lots of dogs and I've got lots of dogs, so that was a message for me as well. And then that tube station at Earl's Court, before she went, we had dinner together, and um, I wanted to know where all the Australians go. And um, she couldn't remember. And finally, over there, she remembered. There's a banality to life. You have to understand that there is a banality to life, but in those interstitial areas is love and friendship and, and purpose. The interesting thing about what I've had to say to you today, and what you really do have to remember is, death, sex, madness and drugs are controversial areas. People have vested interests in these things. 
You only have to think about abortion or euthanasia to understand that these are politically charged. Everyone's got a barrow to push. You have to be very careful. And the near-death experience and mystical experiences at the end of life is no different. Our tempered colleagues are the least of the colleagues you will hear, both in neuroscience and philosophy and in religion. Humility, I think, was mentioned earlier today. And that's such a scarce resource in academic research. But it's the only resource that will allow you to gaze at this fairly, clearly, curiously, openly. I had a distinguished academic career, and it began as soon as I finished my PhD. I went to lodge the thesis, and I ran across two colleagues who had just lodged their PhDs, and we talked about jobs. And one said to me, oh, Alan, I've got a lectureship. <laughs> Thank goodness, the University of Melbourne. Oh, that's great. Ooh. And the other bloke said, well, I haven't got a lectureship. I have a tutorship, but at the University of Sydney. How about you, Alan? I said, well, I have a lectureship too, um, but it's at the Riverina Murray Institute of Higher Education in Wagga Wagga. <laughs> it's a bit like the way people look at me when I say I work at the University of Bradford. They think I'm saying I'm holidaying in a car park in Scunthorpe. <laughs> anyway, I went to uh, Wagga Wagga, and um, I took up art classes. And Wagga Wagga is six hours from Sydney. It's out in the middle of wheat fields. Godforsaken place. It was before the internet. Six weeks it used to take to get an interlibrary loan. That's the sort of situation I was in. And I, I took up art classes. And uh, every evening I would go to the art class. And one day it was cooling down to about 45 degrees. And I drove along this long flat road with wheat fields to the left and the right, a few silos. And on the left-hand side I saw a dust storm, huge dust storm, red, swirling like a cyclone. Every time it crossed something, things disappeared under it. And on the other side was a thunderstorm, rain and lightning. Now, I'm from Sydney. I have not, not grown up in the country. This is the first time I'd seen anything like this. But the worst thing was that the dust storm on my left and the thunderstorm on my right were going to meet over my car. <laughs> so by the time I realised this was going to happen, I jammed on the brakes and stopped. Now, it's not true to say I felt I was dying, but it is true to say I felt really threatened. I felt threatened. I wasn't really expecting this. I was thinking about art classes. I wasn't thinking about this. The thing descended upon me and rocked the car around. I was really happy that it was heavy enough not to flip. But after I got over the initial stress, I could see that actually the colours around the windows of the car were orange and purple and there was flashes of lightning in it. And it was, it was really quite beautiful, really. And there was some whistling and moaning and, and, and singing for a few moments. But I was holding onto the steering wheel really tightly because I had had no experience like this and all I could think of at the time was, shit! But gradually, it lasted about 40 seconds. And then before me, first just a little patch, but then a bit more clearly, I could see the old road reappear before me. 
Maybe death's like that. Maybe. Thank you very much.